This is a Federal News Network podcast. Congress, late as always, has passed a comprehensive spending package for the rest of fiscal 2022. The $1.5 trillion gives the IRS more money to go after tax cheats and sets higher pay caps for nurses at the Veterans Affairs Department. Lawmakers are also asking for a slew of status updates on the state of the federal workforce. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And let's talk about the federal workforce first, Jory. What does Congress want to know about this from the appropriations bill? Quite a lot, actually. They spilled a lot of ink on this issue, and it really does kind of reflect this future of the federal workforce we're hearing so much about in this new stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lawmakers, as part of the omnibus, want the Office of Personnel Management and the Office of Management and Budget to brief the appropriations committees on a bunch of things here. I think the most important is how quickly agencies can hire federal employees, bring them on board in a reasonable amount of time. They say that a lot of agencies have come to committee hearings and have complained about this issue. And so they say at a time where it seems a lot of agencies are on a bit of a hiring spree, they say this has got to be an issue that we have to tackle government wide. That's just one of the issues here. Another is wanting an update from OPM on the current state of the STEM workforce, the federal STEM workforce and anticipated STEM skills in the future. And another interest here is trying to bring in more interns to work for federal agencies, recognizing that once you get an internship at an agency, you're more than likely wanting to get a job there once you graduate. And who has to do all these reports and when are they all due? Some of them are tag team efforts between OMB and OPM, but predominantly these fall on OPM to do. All right. Well, they've got their homework then. And that gets to the topic of telework, which is still roiling the government in many ways. Does the omnibus bill talk about that also? Yeah. Yet another deliverable here for OPM. They issue an annual telework report, the state of telework in the federal workforce every year. But Congress is now asking them to expand on that a little bit more to include telework successes, best practices and lessons learned during the pandemic. And they're also asking OPM to issue guidance specifically for remote work in the federal workforce. So not just the people who split their time out of the office and in the office any given week, but people who rarely go into the office maybe once a quarter or something like that. That's right. That's the new idea that the agencies could hire anybody that's qualified, whether they're near the home office or the particular office or not, so that someone from Boulder could work for Fish and Wildlife Service headquarters in Washington and never need an office in Washington. That's what they mean by remote, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And that really does feed into the another ask this time from the General Services Administration, speaking of telework and remote work, asking GSA for an update on the future of federal office space, recognizing that, hey, if Federal employees are pretty savvy at telework. They probably don't need to go to the office as much. and They they probably don't need as much square footage. And so GSA is going to go to the appropriations committees and give them a status update there. Something GSA has been thinking out loud a lot about for the past couple of years. On the flip side of things, Congress is very mindful about keeping some office space around. They want an update on the viability of building a new FBI headquarters in either suburban Maryland or Virginia. Uh, People who have been following this for a while know that this is an idea that has been kicked around since the Obama administration. Uh, This was something that changed course dramatically under the Trump administration. President Donald Trump wanted to keep the FBI headquarters in downtown D.C. Congress stalled that effort, withheld money on that plan, and now under the Biden administration, they want to 
dust off this old plan to move it outside the district. That's a strange one in many ways because the plans were practically drawn up, the site practically chosen. It sounds like they need to go back a few steps and almost start over. Yeah, this is really wiping the slate clean here in some regard. There were a lot of things in the works here. And so once again, lawmakers are are really kind of asking GSA to start from scratch. Well, if FBI ever moves out of that building on 9th Street, maybe they could military could take over and use it for shelling practice because it's a pretty big pile of concrete and nobody would miss it if it imploded. All right. And uh, there's some more building issues in this new omnibus. Yeah. So this uh, is also another big uh, spending project here. This would continue funding for the St. Elizabeth's campus in southeast D.C. This has been a major, major project. This has been going on for longer than a decade. It's the largest building project since the Pentagon for the federal government. Uh, Not nearly as quick as the Pentagon, which I think went up in 16 months. This is... (laughs) Uh, quite the opposite in that regard. But the latest agency to move into that campus is going to be the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, Yes, in fact, we talked to the National Capital Planning Commission about that building, and the drawings are stunning for the new CISA headquarters. Let's hope they can realize the beautiful drawings by the time it makes it through the meat grinder of the federal process here. And yes, you're right about the Pentagon. I think they were still pouring concrete on one end while people were moving in on the first end or something, and then Maybe they met in the middle there. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And give us the IRS update from the omnibus spending bill. Yeah, a couple of points here. The IRS is getting its biggest spending increase in decades since 2001 here. They're getting a top line figure of $12.6 billion. That's a more than 5% increase from what it already has. And beyond just the money here, the IRS is getting something that they've asked for for quite some time streamlined hiring authority, direct hiring authority to hire more people to deal with its backlog of tax returns and correspondence mail that's just piling up in its campuses across the country here. That is a big ask, something that it has asked from OPM for quite some time and is finally something that is in the works here. And then we also mentioned the Veterans Affairs, Veterans Health Administration, and nurses and physicians could see a little bump up, couldn't they? Yeah. So one piece of legislation that got folded up into the omnibus is the RAISE Act, something that was making its way through the House VA committee. It would increase the salary limit for VA's advanced practice registered nurses and physician's assistants. It would raise it by an order of a couple of tens of thousands of dollars annually. This is something that VA Secretary Dennis McDonough has personally advocated, I think, anytime he's been in front of the press and would really address what he says is a 15-year high for turnover of nurses in the VA. He says that the VA has to offer benefits and pay that's competitive with the private sector. And I guess some people were surprised to see some COVID spending stripped out, but there is the addition of spending to help Ukraine. Yes, yeah, moments of high drama with this piece of the legislation. Congress moved forward with the administration's request to fund support for Ukraine and its NATO allies. However, lawmakers did strip out some funding for COVID programs, kind of a next wave of COVID programs that would really go towards HHS and the State Department to vaccinate more of the population internationally. The rub with that last piece there with the COVID spending is that Republicans wanted that spending to be offset somewhere else in the spending bill. The plan, the tentative plan, was to 
offset that by pulling out some funding for state and local governments. And Democrats were unhappy with that arrangement. And so Nancy Pelosi said, well, we have to get this bill over the finish line and we just have to pull this funding out now and we'll have to revisit this in the future. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.